0: Lord's Day, and also our service tonight is at 6 p.m. Well, let's turn together to Revelation chapter 5, and last week we were in chapter 4, as John uh, starts this new cycle within the book of Revelation, this new section, as he's moved on from the letters to the churches, now he's being brought into the throne room of heaven. An extraordinary... Uh, Picture I and mean, again, like I say, it's, it's it's something that occurred at various times throughout uh, redemptive history in the Bible, where God gives to His people in very difficult times a heavenly vision, a vision of of uh, what is real, not something not something in some kind of dream world, but God opening up the windows of heaven to give His people a sense that He is sitting on. His throne; that he is in control of all things. We saw that with Isaiah in Isaiah 6. We saw it with Ezekiel in chapter 1. Uh, we see it in various uh, uh, parts of, uh, of the, um, the Gospels themselves. Uh, one, for example, is the Transfiguration, where Jesus pulls back the window on his glory to let the disciples see who he really is and that he is the glory of God incarnate in the flesh. We see it, for example, in Paul, uh, as he is writing, for example, to the Ephesians. Uh, the Ephesians, uh, to a church with real problems, with real struggles, much like our own. And yet he, he takes them up, as it were, into heaven. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, and so on. He gives us this very heavenly picture uh, to encourage us, to encourage, as John is doing here, to encourage the church, uh, and to know that in spite of what they see with their eyes. There is another reality behind it. We come to chapter 5, and uh, we get a a, a, a further unveiling, a further opening up of God's glory and God's purposes uh, for mankind. We want to look at this chapter in two sections. I think last week, I I fell into the trap of biting off more than I could chew. And, and, uh, but hopefully I've learned my lesson. And, uh, well, I probably haven't, but uh, I'll probably (laughs) do the same thing next week. But we're going to look at this chapter in two sections, uh, verses 1 to 7. And then look at the remainder next Lord's day. And so what we find here is, again, the. We're still in the throne room. John has been called up after this. I looked and behold, verses chapter 4, verse 1, a door standing open in heaven. The first voice which I heard speaking to me, like a trumpet, said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. John is shown through these images of Jasper and carnelian, the uh, indescribable, uh, using the highest and best that man can marshal in, in the things of this earth, the inexpressible glory of God. And John so he uses those words, looking as it were, or as it were like this, and using words to suggest that though I am describing something, I can't really get to the bottom of it. I can't fully ex- uh, describe to you what I am seeing. And that's really the essence of that chapter. It's, and, and as I said last week, commentators will differ on, on the, the finer points of the chapter, but all are agreed that it is describing God's glory and God's sovereignty. And that's really what uh, must hold home to us. So John is taken again to show, he's shown something very specific. Here in the first verse. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, this is the first verse, him who was seated on the throne, there we saw it was the Lord God, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now, again, I think it's important for us to remind ourselves that John is seeing a real vision is having a real vision here. And he is seeing real things. This is actually historically happening. John is seeing a vision. But he is being given a vision of things that are uh, described, truths that are deeper. Now, we, it's important for us to distinguish between those two things, between historical literature in the Bible and language that is descriptive. Uh, as in visions. For example, when we look at these visions, we're seeing John is, is describing certain things that point to a deeper truth. Now that is not the same when it comes to the miracles, for example. When John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John record a miracle, they are recording something that historically happened. It wasn't a vision. It wasn't simply a story meant to portray a deeper truth, but the apocalypse of John, the visions of John, are to, to take images that would have been familiar to the people to describe something that is deeper. But John is, saw a real vision of real things, but the things that were shown to him by God to express something deeper, and we'll see that as we go through. I say that because sometimes people have preconceived notions. And when you talk about things like we talked about last week, and say, well, uh, streets paved with gold and things like that, well, people say, well, hang on a minute, I was never kind of looking forward to that. And people uh, become upset that uh, well, it may not be exactly the way it's described. Indeed, it will be far greater. That's the point. And the point is not, oh, well, the are talking you. The point is, is, it exceeds human expression. Anything we see here is couched is in limited human language. That's the thing. And what John is getting at is that what awaits us and what is true now, and it's a danger for us to simply project this into the future, but to say the things that are now revealed to us as Paul says and in, in, in 2 Corinthians that, or 1 Corinthians that are now revealed to us are the things that are unfolding here. So John is speaking about a reality that is true, not 100 years from now or 1,000 years from now, but is what is happening in heaven right now. And so when it comes to this scroll, we again are to imagine information, the plans, the will of God, encapsulated in what John describes here as a scroll. He's using an image, a picture, much like C.S. Lewis in describing Aslan, uh, describing Jesus, the picture of the person of Jesus, as a lion in the Chronicles of Narnia. He's not wanting to imagine that Jesus is an actual lion, or as we will see that he is a Physically a lamp, but that he uses these images to convey something far more uh, wonderful. And so he takes in this, in this right hand of him, seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. What is this scroll? What is this uh, book that we might describe in modern language? is in the right hand of God. As we will go on to see throughout the book of Revelation, it is the will and the desires of God for his creation. It is all the things that will happen in history down through the ages. And it is complete. It is total. And it is certain. And it is written, John says, on both sides. Maybe you've gotten cards like that from people. I, I'm sometimes like that. Where you think you're writing a card to someone, you think you've got enough room, and then you find yourself getting, writing the small little bits in your basically falling off the side of the card, hoping and praying that they know what you were getting at by the context of what you had just written. It, it, you fill it out, in other words. And some people are just like, you know, here, so and so happened to stick it in the part and the way it goes. We? We're all different that way, aren't we? But here, God is showing John this scroll that is written on both sides. In other words, it is complete. There is nothing wanting in the plan and purposes of God. It's all of human history. And I do not believe that it's simply the human history from the time of. Jesus to the end. But it's all of human history. It's taken up here in a vision. That that even which was before Jesus came. That Jesus, that God the Father, working through this mediator, is now unveiling and unfolding the the events of human history. It is sealed with seven seals. In other words, the, the number seven... Describes that it is completely sealed. That is cut off from prying eyes. And so the sealing uh, it shows that not only is it cut off from prying eyes, but that it is a matter of great importance. And that it can only be accessed and opened by someone for whom it has been designated. That's true of a letter that's been sealed. A registered letter can only be opened by the one who receives it. And so, what we find here with this book, written within and on the back, describing the totality of God's will for this world and for your life, because the will for the world is made up of people, of individual lives, men and women, boys and girls like you and I, that it is complete. That it is perfect and that it is under the sovereign will and control of God. That's why we saw in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul describes the same thing. It's as if John and Paul are writing from the same perspective but in different ways. Paul, in a kind of a throne room, is describing the purpose of God's will. in him we have had redemption through his love, forgiveness of sin, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things. There is that written on both sides. All things. In heaven and on earth. So you see why it's written on both sides. It includes the totality of God's will, not just for you as an individual, not just for my soul, but for my body. Body and soul. That's what Jesus is coming for. And so we will witness a general resurrection of the dead. We will find a new heavens and a new earth. All creation, as Paul says, is groaning and travailing, waiting for the appearing of the adoption of sons, waiting for the sons of God to come. It's his will for the heavens and the stars and the galaxies. As far as the curse is found, that's what he has come to remove. That's what he's come to deal with. It's all encompassing. And that's what's found in this book. That's why it's so important, and that's what John is being given a window into seeing here. What will become of the purposes and the plans in this book? Very curious as John looks at it. As I saw a strong angel playing with a loud voice, and I saw I'm sorry, a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to read loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and to look into it. This is a very curious thing. Here is a book in the hand of God and the angel says, Who is worthy to open it? Well, it's a curious question because one might say, well, why doesn't God just open it? Isn't it His book? Why can't God just simply get to tell us or have an angel read through the pages of what's going on here? What, What Revelation is pointing us to here is the necessity of someone to stand between God and ourselves. One who is able to unite God's purposes with a fallen world. And out of that, the angel is crying, who is in that place? Who will, in this fallen world, this world of sin and evil and brokenness, In this world where the wrath of God, as Paul says in Romans 1, is being poured out against all unrighteousness, who is worthy? He doesn't say, curiously enough, who is able to open. Who is worthy? One person has described it this way. If God were to open on his own with no mediator or protector, the scroll that pours out wrath, no one will be able to escape the punishment that will be poured out. Someone must come unto this dramatic heavenly scene to demonstrate the justice of God against evil. In other words, someone must appear to say, it's okay now. We can unleash these things, unleash the will of God, unleash the purposes of God. In a way that is consistent with God's original design for creation. To create a universe the way He wanted, to create man in His own image, and for that to continue on. Someone must come, they say, unto this dramatic heavenly scene to demonstrate the justice of God against evil, as well as the uh, sacrifice of God to accomplish salvation. So in this heavenly drama, the search is on for someone who is worthy to open the scroll. Someone who is pure and powerful and perfect. Someone who can be a mediator between a holy God and a sinful people. That is the, key. the mediator. Who will go be- before us? Who will stand before us, before God? And who will come from God to, to come down to where we are. This is what the angel was crying out who is worthy to do it? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. What is John faced with here? He is faced with the absolute bankruptcy of the human race, including his own. No one was found worthy. No angel, no human being, no world leader, no religious leader was found worthy to take such a sacred document as the purposes and plans for God for the world, and begin to be in the place to begin to unleash them and unfold them. And to say, now we can because this work has been done. I have laid the groundwork. I fulfill fulfilled the purposes so that now these scrolls, I can go and take that scroll and say, thank you. And I can begin to open it up with my holy according to my finished work. According to who I am. That's the idea here. John knows that there is no one else. No religious leader. Even the best that the Bible can throw up at us. Moses, Abraham, David, Peter, Paul, whoever it is, they're all sinners. And they make much of their sin on the pages of sacred scripture. There's none worthy. David says it. Paul says it. They all say it. The angel says it. John knows it. He is the disciple whom Jesus loved. He enjoys a certain proximity to Jesus, doesn't he? a certain intimacy with Jesus. But John is just, he's not looking at himself. He's weeping. He's broken the because there is no one worthy. And he weeps over this fact. What will become of the purposes of God? What will become of the human race? What will become of God's people? Where will it all end? Will it all end in evil and judgment and brokenness? That's why John weeps. He's weeping over these things. And uh, we need to stop there and think for a second. You've often heard it said that in this world there are two kinds of people. And they'll say, you know, there's those who like country music and those who don't like country music. Or whatever. Those who like pop and those who don't like Well, There are two kinds of people in this world that the Bible describes those who will weep, and those who will not. The Bible describes those who reject God's purposes for their lives, God's provision for their soul, as those who will partake of weeping and gnashing of teeth through all time and eternity. That's how they're described. That's how Jesus himself describes them. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth because just as John does not see here, it's not revealed immediately the him. the remedy or the mediator, who it is that is going to take that book. So it is with all who reject the purposes of God in Christ for their lives. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe that's some of you here today who week after week, month after month, year after year, have been rejecting the purposes, the plans of God for your heart and soul, your life, and the provision that he has made. And friends, what the Bible describes in John weeping here, so, in, in such anguish, is the destiny and the lot of all who would reject God's purposes in their lives. The opposite, of course, is true, as we'll see next week with the, 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 the joy and the uh, uh, the worship that breaks out breaks of those who have embraced the provisions of God for their soul and for this world. We need to soberly let that set upon our minds. Think about God. Think about John's weeping. Think about his tears. Think about his broken heartedness. That is a reflection of the sorrow and misery of this world. But the good news is that God has made provision in his son. And this is what we see. And this is why the angel, one of the elders rather, says in verse 5, Weep no more. How's that for a command? Stop weeping. You have no reason to weep. Why? Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the roof of David has conquered so that he can open the scrolls and its seven seals. Friends, the wonder of God's word is how it all agrees. That testifies to us that this is not simply a man-made book. It's not simply the musings of prophets and apostles and people like that, but it, it, there's an internal unity to it, so that when he uses the language like the lion of the tribe of Judah, he's not ashamed of going back almost 2,000 years before to the time of Jacob, where Jacob describes his son Judah as being like a lion. And that through his learning, will come the king to whom all the nations will come. And John here is hearing this elder saying the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed. Describing his power. This is where C.S. Lewis gets this imagery of, of, of Aslan the lion. It speaks of his power. You see, it's not good enough simply to have someone who will sympathize with us, but someone who is able to actually do something about it. He is God manifest in the flesh. He is of the tribe of Judah. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And Judah was the tribe from which that great ruler would come. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. The scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs. And the obedience of the nations is his. I mean, how could a nomadic family come up with such words, such exalted words, such amazing words, to say that, There's one coming from you, Judah, to whom all the nations will come. And John here is hearing the elders say, this is it. He is the one. Jesus is the one. so it speaks of his power and his authority and his his ability to to conquer and put all his enemies under his feet. But then another strange thing happens. Again, we ask, well, why is it just sharply going from one thing into another? Why isn't there not some kind of continuous progress? It's because John again is using imagery. A lion is announced, but he sees something else. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders I saw a lamb, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the people. Expecting to see a, a lion. See, i mean, You would be pumped up to see that. You're. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has Late. I mean, get into that. There's where power is. There's where victory is. And as he turns, he says, There was a throne, there were the 24 hours. And in the midst of that was a lamb, looking like it had been just hacked to pieces with blood all over it." we might ask, what a strange thing. What a strange thing to see, to be encouraged by. What a strange thing for those are in this heavenly throne room to direct my attention to. Rather than seeing this lion, I see a lamb. This is John's favorite way of describing Jesus in the book of Revelation. He uses it some 28 times. He sees a lamb, looking as if it had been slain and conquered. But it wasn't conquered it was standing. It was standing upright. And what John is seeing, what the, what the vision is communicating to him is that the central purposes of God in this scroll and all his plans for human history and for your life and my life is focused around the work of this sacrificial lamb. In other words, God is saying that only on the basis of what Jesus did on that cross can any of His purposes take place, any of His desires for the human race, bringing creation to its ultimate fulfillment and purpose. In order for God to show His kindness and goodness to a rebellious people like ourselves, God can't just snap His fingers and have it done with that. God cannot deny Himself. Sweep everything under the rug and say, Well, let's let bygones be bygones. Do a few good works and I'll be good. That's how many people think of it. And that's why the Bible goes to such lengths is to hold the centrality of the cross. And why we this morning must come to realize this. We must come to know this and and embrace it without a shadow of a doubt. Because what the Bible is saying here is that our eternal life hangs on what John has seen. That your sin, and we are, a, we are moral creatures. We live in a moral universe. We have consciences. And we know, even at a human level, that we have sinned, we have wronged, we have done other people wrong, we have said and thought things, we thought things that are wrong. Where do we go with that? What do we do with that? God knows, and he knew then, that your sin was of such a nature that he had to send his own son. The one who is worshipped in the midst of the throne it is he who had to come and become one of us, one of the human race. Can you imagine the maker of heaven and earth humbling himself to be like a little man? Again, please don't think of Jesus with wool and four hooks and things like that. But the spirit of the lamb was in Jesus, the humility. The fact that he could be taken, and people could do whatever they wanted with him, just to get a lamb. You can shear its wool. You can have it for supper. You can do whatever you like to that lamb is completely vulnerable. And it is that that the Lord of heaven entered into for you and for me. Not only becoming humble like a lamb, but as John shows us here, looking as if it had been slain, cut to pieces. What an amazing thing. And that's why Jesus, when he comes to doubting Thomas, who refused to believe, Jesus says, reach forth your hand and put your fingers into the nail prints and put your hand into my side and be not faithless, but believe me. And he says, my Lord and my God, that's exactly what this throne room scene is calling us to. This is what this, these visions are driving us to. That at the center of history is the cross. At the center of history is a sacrifice that God provided for you and I. That There's no getting around it. There's no, there's no negotiating with this. God won't go anywhere with it. He, he says, this is what I have purpose." Why would we want to go anywhere else? What are you doing in your heart this morning? What does your life say? What does the course of your life look like? Are you saying, I can go without this? By your presumption, do you look to your good works, the way you treat other people? Uh, your, even your church going? However good you dress it up and however good it looks, if it falls short of beholding the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and owning that, you are cutting yourself off on the purposes of God. And you will find yourself like John who wept for a moment until the elders stopped him. You will find yourself weeping forever if you do not come to terms with who this is. And this is why I mean, at the very heart of it, at the very heart of God's purposes, is the cross. That's almost the way it's made. You go back to the book of Exodus. Hundreds of thousands of people ready to disembark the next day, God says. Unless I see blood, no one's going to Unless I see blood over that doorpost, the firstborn of every house will be destroyed. Egyptian or Israelite, whoever, unless I see the blood. It was there, it was there, way back then. In other words, the, the blood was the key to unfolding. Purposes of God for humanity, for certainly for His people there, but even here in the Book of Revelation, John is drawing our attention to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what we are called to do then here this morning. Only on the basis of Jesus' death can that, those purposes go forward. That's why the angel says, "Who is worthy?" Who has done what is needed to be done? Who has satisfied God's righteous demands? Who has made a way for God to be reconciled unto his, his people and unto his own world? Who has done it? Who is worthy to take such a book and to begin to open up and to unfold these purposes? There's only one. There's only has been one and only will be one. And there's only one for you this morning, and it's not you. And it's not the Pope, and it's not Billy Graham, and it's not any other religious leader. It's Jesus alone. This is what the Bible is singularly drawing your attention to. But he has done it. The heavenly hosts don't make any bones about this isn't inclusive. They don't say, well, why isn't there another way? Isn't God being a little narrow? No, they they they, they just fall down and worship. They just they're just amazed that God would love humanity in such a way as this. And they dare not entertain any other notions, any other ways. And neither can we friends this. Please ask God to search your heart this morning to say, Lord, am I on a different path here today? Am I looking for another way other than the lamb in the midst of the throne? The lamb who, who was slain for me. Oh, he was slain. This is the way that murdered. No, we need those words because it shows us the depth of his love for us. Having been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, ascended into all the world, that the seven horns simply talks about his power. Though he is the Lamb of God, saying, Look, your sins have been at home for. But don't just think of Jesus as being a helpless lamb. And that's it. No, he has seven horns, which speaks of power. He has ultimate power. And before he goes, he says to his disciples, All authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. And he pours out the Holy Spirit upon his church. And that is what is described here, the spirit of wisdom and might and all of these things that God's spirit is seven spirits, but he's talking about the perfection of God's spirit, which he gives to his church. And so the throne room is turned from a place of weeping into a place of rejoicing, a place of confidence, a place of hope. And when we take it down to our level, we take it down to our church gathering here this morning among ourselves, the lessons are clear. But God has provided a way, and what a way it is! He has provided a mediator, and the heavens have answered. There is one who is worthy, and it's our calling then this morning to come to Him, to accept the provision that God has made for our souls in Him, and to rejoice in it, and to spend the rest of our lives not only knowing Him but making Him known to this world, because that's what's encapsulated in this as well, that the nations might know, people out with it, to tell people what God has done in Christ. Oh, Oh Lord,